Canada has welcomed the digital economy like few other countries, but we're still reliant on physical identity documents to access government services or complete high-value transactions. Interac is working to address this gap and make a secure, convenient, and private-enhancing digital ID ecosystem a reality for Canadians. Learn more at newsroom.interact.ca. Hey everyone, it's Friday, May 17th. Feeling a little bit more like mid-October out there. <laughs> I've got Shannon Pravda, McLean's, and David Reevely of the Canadian Press here with me in studio. It's been a little while. We took a bit of a pause last week. Shannon, you were traveling in Chicago. Um, tell us about what you were doing. Um, well, um, we didn't do a lot of planning ahead. So at 9.30 on Thursday morning, I got an email from my editor that said, hey, you want to go to Chicago tonight and see Margaret Trudeau's one-woman show at the Second City? Hello. And I said, yes, yes, I do. So uh, off I went. Um, I think I had about two hours to book my ticket and get to the airport. Chicago looks beautiful. I was there for 18 hours. It was wonderful. Um, but I got to see the opening night of her show, which is um, being workshopped. So it was very much kind okay. of a work in progress. They had a music standout and she was reading from the script right. um, because they're obviously still kind of polishing and shaping it. The reason it premiered in Chicago... I mean, on the surface is because she's very good friends with the wife of the owner of the Second City. I suspect oh. a big part of it, too, is it was a place for it to kind of be put out into the world that it didn't have, like, the massive screaming spotlight on it that you can yes. imagine it would have had in Ottawa or Montreal. Um, was Trudeau there? He was there on closing night. He okay, wasn't there okay. the night. I, the night I was there, her daughter right. Alicia Kemper was the only, of the, only one of the kids who was there. Um it's quite a charming, interesting thing. Hmm. Like, it's got a real kind of antic energy to it. Like, the show itself, like, it's very much centered on her experience with mental health issues. Yes, and, right. and that's obviously a cause she's very interested in being very vocal about. So it's kind of a storytelling exercise. You kind of sense that the what the audience wants are these, you know, juicy, crazy stories behind the photos in the gossip pages from, you know, the 70s and 80s. And there's plenty of that. Um, but she also very much wants to tell the stories from the perspective of understanding now that it was undiagnosed mental illness. Yeah. It's really, it was really genuinely a fascinating, interesting little glimpse. Um, yeah, it was, it was that's cool. cool. That's really it cool. It was neat. Okay, so let, let's get right into it. So first up, the Mark Norman affair, something we all probably thought we would be um, <laughs> plagued the next would plague the next election cycle uh, this summer as the court hearings were were going to go and get underway in August. But it's instead been somewhat addressed uh, as of the past couple of days, and and I would say squashed ish, but not really. Um, so late last week, public prosecutors dropped their case against Vice Admiral Mark Norman, the second in command uh, of the military, after he was charged last March with a breach of trust for allegedly leaking cabinet secrets from a, a government contract to convert a civilian cargo ship into a military supply vessel. So this after, um, so the, the, the case was dropped after various members of uh, former Prime Minister Stephen Harper's cabinet came forward with information, bringing it to the Crown and um, inferring that, from my understanding, that Norman didn't do this rogue, and and there was there was authorization of some sort um, from senior member or senior members of the PMO um, in the Harper days to speak with the Davy Shipyard directly uh, about the contract. So my my first question: We know Jason Kenny came forward with um, some of this valuable information. Why wouldn't someone like Jason Kenny be reprimanded for unveil unveiling 
those kind of secrets at a t- you know cabinet secrets at that time. Uh, and we should say, as and this we, is all led to begin. Yeah, yeah. It's, it, that we don't actually know precisely what the information was. We know that the crown went into court and said, "We've learned new information. Some of it from third parties. Some of it came to us via the defense." That causes us to believe that we have no reasonable prospect of conviction here. Right. The bar for convicting a public official of breach of trust is really high. They previously thought they could do it. They learned new stuff. They concluded they couldn't anymore. Case uh, technically stayed. <laughs> yeah. Charges, right. you know, so it still exists, but it's not ever going to go anywhere again. Um, Jason Kenny, if if the information is that Jason Kenny had told Mark Norman that he could deal with the shipyard, well, he was the minister, and he was minister of national defense for a time, and the minister has prerogatives. And if Norman was talking to... Davy Shipyard, uh, with the permission of his you know, civilian overseer, the minister, then that would not necessarily have been a, a right. violation of cabinet secrecy because it's information that came to him in the proper course of his duties from his minister. And the ministers deal with cabinet secrets all the time and right. convey bits and pieces of them to their departments. Uh, so there just would not have been, though certainly not the level of impropriety uh, that the functionary, in this case Norman, was alleged to have committed. But ministers spread cabinet secrets all All the the time. time. They kind of have that prerogative because they're the ministers. They're the members of cabinet. It's the the subordinates, the people who work as officials in government who aren't allowed to do that. They get access to this stuff to help cabinet, not to go around spreading it willy-nilly with others. So there, let's say let's say all of this is proven true. Kenny did talk to Norman and said, go talk to Davis, Davies Shipyard. Nothing about that is that he, that they informed the, the, the shipyard. Nothing about, nothing about that is illegal, that they spoke to them. The Crown, I, I believe the, what the prosecutor said was uh, Norman's behavior might have been inappropriate, but not illegal. Okay. So perhaps something you might punish as a, as a, a workplace bit of malfeasance, right. not something we're going to put you in jail for. Okay. And in the course of a criminal trial, can't put you in jail, we're not doing the trial. This is a really messy case, isn't it? I mean, so going back it to- It seems me, very complex. It's it very does. subtle. And there's, because it also and involves different- um, Two different governments. Two different yeah. governments. And as for Kenny, it was Kenny, Aaron O'Toole, and- Peter McKay. Peter McKay, who at various times held different portfolios that, that revolved around this, who all spoke in some capacity. But, but like, as David said, we don't really know what the- exonerating, if you will, evidence was that came forward. But Marie Hennen also, who is Mark Norman's right. lawyer, also produced uh, a letter, I think as part of her court, the court documents from former Prime Minister Stephen Harper saying, I would have been happy to waive cabinet confidence and have all of this disclosed on the record. Nobody asked me. Hmm. And that sort of seems to be where a lot of the, or at least some of the allegations of political interference here uh, coming from the opposition is located in the fact that the RCMP did this full court press investigation, but didn't appear to be interested in talking to members and cabinet right. ministers of the former government, which was actually the most relevant time period covered by this. Like it sort of bridges that, the two that governments. Does seem but yeah, they didn't. I, I think they were of the ten different kind of cases of him passing information back and forth. I think most of them, and by far the most relevant one in which a CBC reporter was given information, all occurred during the tenure of the Harper government. So, so it does seem, at they? least on its surface, without us knowing anything else, very strange that those people were not spoken to and apparently felt 
the need to just put up their hands and volunteer the information, apparently it looks like maybe through Norman's defense. Right. Through Norman's defense. It, as, as I understand it, they were asked by investigators working for his defense team who were trying to get a complete picture of what defense, right. what evidence they might they might pull together. The question of why the Crown didn't come up with this is, it, on their just, own. It's that is peculiar. It's peculiar. It's peculiar. So Mary Hennon, who's just she's just a jack up a bit of a girl crush on her. She's a total badass. She uh, she also accused the lib- liberals of, of like you say, Shannon, of, of meddling in the case, influencing you know witnesses and um, directing the prosecution and, and maybe insinuating before the case had cl- or the case had um, stayed that um, that Norman was guilty. Well, there was a point when Harper, or pardon me, Harper, wrong prime minister, when Trudeau said, I think this was in twenty seventeen or twenty eighteen. There seems to be a lot made of this quote where he said, I assume we will see Mark Norman, that we will see this case in the courts at some point, so I'm not going to comment on it. I suppose it's possible that was boilerplate before the courts. I don't want to talk about it. Please leave me alone. But some people have interpreted it as being sort of a a sign, like a a tell of political interference. And now we have this story in The Globe this morning that says that Trudeau personally was royally ticked about this leak and that basically the, the the political energy for the RCMP to pursue it came from him via the PCO because he was so sort of angered by this leak and wanted to track down the source of it. And, the, and I'm part of the two important elements of complexity here, which I'm, I'm afraid will not make this clearer by the time I'm done talking. But <laughs> no. there, there are Give two governments involved and secrets from the previous government are kept from the current government. So the Trudeau government would not have necessarily been informed what the Harper government had done on this file. And so it is entirely plausible, in fact likely, that Norman got instruction or permissions from a previous defense minister, was acting on them. Government changed. He continued doing what he had been told to do. Uh, did not get contrary instructions from the Trudeauites in the, you know, this like the first couple of weeks they were in power right. that this was going on. And... Th- gave information to Davey that was entirely appropriate given what he'd been told to do by Kenny and other previous ministers. And the Trudeauites had no idea what, what who was giving this information to Davey. You can understand them being angry and you can understand uh, Norman thinking that he was behaving completely reasonably and both of them, you know, being... A, Behaving right, in a way basically. that makes total sense, both of them being right. <laughs> yeah. But why was Trudeau so ticked about this leak that happened? Well, the allegation was that it was an attempt to undermine the liberal cabinet's decision making. That uh, there were the, the this deal for the supply ship had been negotiated under Harper, but the Trudeauites had to finish it off. They had to actually sign off on the deal, and. They wanted to put a pause on it to kind of get their heads around what was going on. Uh, I mean, there are various other theories right. about, about it, but right. it all had to be done in a very short time. And they did put a pause on on it. And the allegation was that Norman was giving secret information to Davy while this was going on to help Davy strategize and maneuver in a way to make sure that they got the contract nailed down. Hmm. And, you know, having someone who is a senior figure in the military giving secret information to a potential contractor to try to stampede the cabinet into doing something that the cabinet isn't sure it wants to do, that's the absolute harshest interpretation you can put on this. That's bad. Yeah. But the evidence suggests, and certainly the Crown's take on it, suggests that that is not actually what happened. If... 
Trudeau and the Liberals thought that that's what was going on. As I say, you can understand why they were angry. They're angry yeah. But if his behavior made sense, given what he had been previously told and that nobody told the Liberals about, yeah. then it, you can understand why he would feel extremely put upon in all this. To that end, can you explain how Scott Bryson comes into this? Mm-hmm. Everything comes back to Scott Bryson. He's our, <laughs> he's new, he's our new Kevin. Yeah. Actually, yeah, that was at the um, that was yeah, at yeah. the, 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 the politics and the pen. pen. The other night there was a joke about that um, because he – so essentially um, there are, again, um, the ifs and allegations of all of this, but that Scott Bryson was communicating with Irving, right, yes. a- about – Davies' um, competitor. Davies' competitor about a potential um, relationship there. So then there's talk of was was that why they delayed the – that is that has been the implication yeah. on a lot of a lot of people's part. Bryson was the senior minister for Nova Scotia, where Irving is based. Uh, he was also well where their shipyard is. He was also president of the Treasury Board and was involved in the cabinet, like the very early on in the Trudeau days. Look at this deal and should we go ahead? And apparently he was instrumental in at least the pause, which only lasted like a week. And they oh, long- really? eventually decided okay. to, to go ahead with it. So exactly why they paused it and why they were able to deal with it so quickly, I'm not sure that is really clear, but this was not yeah. a this was not a long period. No, okay, okay. The allegation though is that he was interested as the Nova Scotia minister in moving the business from a Quebec shipyard right. to a Nova Scotia shipyard. Right. He has always said, no, I was the president of the Treasury Board. It was my job to make sure that the government's money was properly spent. And all I wanted to do was make sure that we had a right. handle on why we were spending this money with this shipyard instead right. of that shipyard. Because Irving was also saying we can do this much more cheaply. Right. So why does it make sense to so go with fair. that deal instead of this deal? Right. Oh my gosh. Really, there are so many layers to this. So since the decision... Um, the, the Conservatives and the NDP have been pushing for the National Defense Committee to launch an investigation to whether the Liberals interfered with the prosecution. But I um, I understand um, because that was a Liberal-dominated – because it is a Liberal-dominated committee, that was shut down. Um, sort of like the um, – Memories of shades SNC of February. Yes, exactly. It's exactly. Like exactly. That, yeah. yeah, right. The opposition could force the meeting, but they could not force the committee to actually do what they wanted it to do. So, yeah, prevented SNC hearings 2.0, um, but which honestly could have been potentially really harm, harmful for for Trudeau's government. Um, on Tuesday, the the House voted unanim- unanimously to um, even with liberal support from what I was into to apologize um, to Vice Admiral Mark Norman for the damage this legal ordeal has caused him because uh, I think it was put forward by um, Lisa 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 Raitt. Sorry, wrong level of government, wrong Lisa. Apologies. (laughs) But it's okay. Um, But that, uh, you know, obviously this has has sort of put his name through the mud. Um, And I wonder if there's questions of if he can go back into the armed forces. You know, what can he do next, really? So, well, I mean, Jonathan Vance has said he's welcome back, um, and he has said he is interested in going back. I think that's still TBD. It's it's very fresh. Um, sorry, Jonathan Vance being chief of defense staff. Um, it, it, it's the, the apology was sort of interesting because when Lisa Raitt rose in the House to propose it, she it passed very quickly unanimously, and she said she'd already consulted. Like, she was, it was known that all parties would support this. Mm. You sort of wonder politically if there were different motivations or reasoning behind those apologies, depending on who you are. Right. The opposition has a lot of interest in keeping this going and yeah. keeping the liberal, liberal government wearing it. The liberals obviously want it to go away as quickly as possible, and it's, it's a bit of a rough look for them to be 
to be appearing to have impugned, you know, a, a long-serving member of Canada's military. So for them to apologize and and make good and go, okay, are we solid? We're solid, is is sort of a cleaning up a mess thing. Whereas the opposition to have this apology and keep it in the news and keep it alive. And the, and the apology as well was carefully worded. It's it was closer to. We we're, we're we're sorry for what you've been through. Right, yeah. right, right. Then we're sorry for anything we did. We did. Sort yes. of an acknowledgement. I'm sorry well, if your feelings pain. were hurt. And, that yeah, and Trudeau. Yeah. It wasn't quite that bad, but it was it was yeah, much yeah. closer to that than we were pri- sorry for something we did. The Prime Minister was wasn't wrong. actually there, which which probably was strategic in the in the thinking that if you know, if he apologizes, it's it's admitting some sort of wrongdoing. Or yeah, it's a and also it was a motion. It's a, a sense yeah, of the house sort right. of thing. It's not like symbolic. A, one of the things you brought up is actually the challenge of reintegrating Norman into the military. And and my colleague Lieber Hume wrote about it. Uh, he was number two in the chain of command. There's a number one and a number two, and that is it. There are no other. And his his old job has been filled mm. on a you know an indefinite basis. You know, top jobs like that aren't permanent exactly, but there's another guy who was doing it. Before Norman was the vice chief of the defense staff, he was the commander of the Navy. Like, that's the level that he's at. Like, so yeah. if he were to go back to being just the commander of the Royal Canadian Navy, that would effectively be a demotion for him. They're, they're going to have a heck of a time finding so, but a, a post for him. Could Hennon then come back and sue for... They've still back. left the door open the door to that. When she yeah. was asked about that yeah. the day the charges were stayed, I think all she said was, like, this just happened. We don't know our right. next move. Um but certainly his defense team has has made lots of noise about how much this cost him all quite literally and the government has now said they're going to cover his legal costs so the financial cost but yeah the cost to his career trajectory the stress having his name dragged out there you know two or three years of his life that's not nothing and as david says his his career path is interrupted in a way that doesn't seem easily reconciled. Mm. All right, we'll keep going here. It's been quite a week of climate talk in Canada. Firstly, on Monday, the Senate began their study of Bill C-69. The Liberals proposed legislation that would alter the environmental review process for major energy and transportation projects. Right off the bat, the Senate Energy Committee approved, what, it was like 200 changes or something to the to the bill, which would, um, from what I've read, draws draws it back quite a bit um, to appeal more to the to the oil and, and gas groups. Environmentalists say it guts the bill. It guts the bill. The energy interest, Jason Kenney, uh, people who you know support the energy industry say it improves it dramatically. <laughs> right. Depends on your perspective. Depends on your perspective. Um, so I need a sort of um, legislative process. Uh, explanation here. So what happens next if this is approved by uh, committee, then it does ha- has to be approved by Senate at large? Yep. Let's go to the whole Senate next. Then the Senate will decide what to do. And the Senate, the numbers are not as close right. uh, as they are in committee, where liberals and independents usually have a majority of one, given the composition of the Senate. In the full Senate, they have more of a margin. Although the independents these days are... they're appointed by liberals by and large, but not necessarily inclined to vote with them. Right. Uh, and then the Senate votes on the final package, and then that goes back to the House of Commons to decide what to do with it, where the government has significant say. Right. So, so ultimately, the government will get its way. It's basically like ping-ponging kind of again. So Alberta Premier uh, Jason Kenney is calling the amendments a win, as you said, David. He said he stated this week that the federal government's carbon tax plan will be killed as well in two weeks by May 30th. Um, this does, however, leave room for the, the federal government to impose, as we've talked about on this podcast before, impose a, um, their federal tax like it's done in on Ontario, um, New Brunswick, um, 
what, Man- Saskatchewan, Manitoba. Saskatchewan, Manitoba, and um, that list gets longer and longer, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> like when you think about the composition of things a right. year ago yeah. when that federal carbon tax plan was for, or even longer ago. Um, yeah, anyway, yeah, yeah. So, so. Um, which, but as we're seeing in Ontario, it's led to a, a court battle, so that could also happen. Um, speaking of Ontario, Premier Doug Ford, who is also vocally anti-carbon tax, released an ad this week highlighting just that. The ad was funded, as we as has been reported, uh, by taxpayer dollars, around thirty million dollars. In fact, um, it de- that's a total campaign. Uh, oh, the total yeah, campaign of just, the, yeah, with the, the radio ads, ads as well. Radio ads, the yeah. stickers. The, yes. I believe that funds the court case. Like that—that's the the cost of the, the oh, full campaign. Oh, even the court case as well. Okay, all right. So it wasn't just the TV ad. <laughs> um, it depicts uh, Canadians at the gas pumps, at the grocery store, sitting at home, and change comes pouring out through different avenues um, in different environments. Um, the voiceover alludes to, um, you know, that, that, that costs of everything is going to go up. Um, and But as a few people notice, including my old colleague, Mike Moffat, if you turn the volume off... And it, someone redubbed it, yeah, right? Yeah. Someone gave it a new voiceover. Someone redubbed it. It actually looks like it's a promotion of... Like, Money's the, flying the, in yeah, everywhere. You're getting all this money. <laughs> the carbon rebate. Yeah. Um, so it was uh, it was kind of an interest. What did you guys think of that ad? Uh, it, it's, I, I mean, the, the way that you could invert it is, is hilarious, yeah, it's right? Hilarious. Like that, and it, and it also, the way that you could invert the ad itself is, is perfectly maps onto the actual policy debate about it. Yes. Of, like insofar as is this costing ordinary people who can't afford it or are you getting all that money back at the end? And we're really trying to like move the, the costs yeah. up the food chain to the, the suppliers or the producers or whatever. So it's, it's kind of this, it was this symbolic, neat, of, yeah. this neat, perfect symbolism. Um, it's fascinating to me the loophole that that ad has apparently highlighted in election financing, election ad financing rules in that apparently nobody anticipated that provincial governments would be like a massive force in this. And Mm -hmm. so they are effectively exempt. And you now have a number of provincial governments that are highly motivated, highly vocal, remarkably aligned. So you can sort of imagine, I think the 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 spending limits like it's there's wonky details but the spending limits kick in June 30th right. is like the pre-rip Pre- period right. and it's Pre- I think a million period. and a half per party and then a million for third parties party. which would be like entities like lobbying like um, Facebook interest um, groups like yeah. Canada Proud yeah. stuff like that um, but Ontario Alberta whoever else wants to weigh in is neither of those things and apparently theoretically could spend however much it wants which raises sort of a really interesting specter if you think about how much um, you know, Alberta, Saskatchewan, um, Ontario are sort of aligned in their thinking of this. If they wanted to pool their resources, you could have this massive effort that is effectively a proxy war on behalf of presumably the the, the sheer conservatives against the Trudeau government that is right. funded by these provincial governments or, or their taxpayers. Why right has there, no one is, thought of this before? Like, this is a huge... It's an unprecedented situation. Right. There have been, certainly there have been provincial governments that have battled with federal governments. Yeah. And just I mean, the last provincial election in Ontario, uh, well, two ago, Kathleen Wynne made a lot of mileage fighting uh, the Harper Tories who were in power federally at the time and were on their way down and beating them up, I think, worked quite well for the Ontario Liberals. 
And now, I mean, they didn't go quite so far as to take out television ads criticizing right. very specific policies or putting stickers on gas pumps to yeah. complain about uh, one element of, of a federal plan. But it's not really been done before. Not like this. They're not like so this. So, first of all, I'm not actually sure whether constitutionally the federal government could regulate provincial government spending on political. Political but if it if, type advertising. But if it was... F- but it's not come up before. Right. But it was if it's for federal aim, I wonder if it... I don't know. It's, it gets pretty... Confu- it gets kind of tricky there. But it is interesting to me. I mean, that, that there's this loophole. And it was I was reading Susan Delacourt's piece on it. It probably won't be those th- third-party advertisers that we think of that are going to cause Trudeau the most trouble. It's going to be the... The provincial government. It could be the provincial governments. And I'm sure we won't. They certainly look like they are interested in playing that role. Yes. Yeah. yeah. For me, one of the frustrating things about it is that as governments, they're not, I mean, they're, they're, they're not presenting the full picture on the carbon tax. They, they focus on the tax, but not the rebate. And mm-hmm. the the idea is that if you know you pay you do pay more at the pump you pay a lot more at the pump if you use a lot of fuel and you do pay more for goods that are carbon intensive but you also get the rebate on your income taxes right. as anyone who's done their income taxes you know in the last month knows and those are a package and I think in the interests of truth it's important to acknowledge both mm-hmm. of them yeah. and so I the the Provincial governments presenting only part of the picture, right. I find somewhat distressing. Right, and um, it se- that seems m- more selective than your typically elastic political rhetoric. Yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? Like we, of course, they they torque and tweak things, but that is a very selective presentation of the facts, yeah. the material facts to this, right? Yeah. yeah. Up at the federal level, um, Conservative leader Andrew Scheer and NDP leader uh, Jagan Singh also sort of unveiled uh, you know, sprinkles of their climate plans this week. Um, Scheer's is expected in, in June. Um, he said he will set out to meet Canada's targets in the Paris Climate Change Accord, but also, you know, focus on, um, this is interesting, focus on helping other countries reach theirs. Yeah. So he, he seems to be focused on a mechanism that apparently was part of the Paris Climate Accord, but was meant to be like the next step. It was meant to be, okay, let's have all these countries meet their own targets first. And then the idea is as a next step, we could have developed rich nations help other nations get even better. And Shear's plan, now the details will be unveiled next month, but what he said this week is is that he seems primarily interested in skipping the first step and going to the second. That he says... Um, I mean, his argument is that that the Trudeau government's plan is not going to meet the Paris commitments anyway, but that he is more interested in spending money and committing to help other countries right. find more efficient ways to do things rather than reducing emissions here at home. Right. You can see how that is that threads a needle that he needs to thread politically in that he has a lot of support in Alberta, the oil patch, in places in, in industries that are highly carbon intensive and as it gets, as the, the, the heat around heat, haha, around the issue of climate change gets higher and higher and he has no, like, there's not a lot of room anymore to say we're not going to do anything or we don't think this is a problem. Politically, that becomes a bit tricky for him. So for him to say we do need to do something, but it's not something that's going to harm those jobs in Alberta or you right. guys doing this or that, the, whose support I really count on and who I want to support in turn, we're going to go elsewhere across international borders. I, I guess that's sort of a, yeah. a neat potential solution for him? It's, I mean, has, I remember in high school seeing a video about uh, 
trading carbon allowances. I mean, the cap and trade mm -hmm. systems mm -hmm. do allow developed countries to pay to reduce carbon emissions in less developed countries and that being presented as a good thing. And it, I mean, there's only one atmosphere. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that if uh, we only have hints and little bits around the edges, yeah, yeah. but if the point is to reduce emissions overall, then exactly where it happens, I, I'm not sure how important that right, is right. because we share the same atmosphere as China. We share the same atmosphere as Brazil. No, you're right. If we're going to pay to replace a coal plant with a solar plant, doesn't really matter yeah. where it is. Yeah. yeah. He also plans to amend the liberal motion to declare a climate emergency, which the liberal, yeah, the liberals have put forward. Um, can I ask, is that just sort of like a symbolic thing? Like a, like a. It's another one of those motions. They're all the symbolic. Motions. Okay. All uh, right. Except to the extent that, well, that you force your opponents to put either vote for something that they'd rather not vote for or vote against it. And that's the real point of the liberal motion the here, right? Yeah. Okay. It's, it's like the, the Norman motion. Did, did, they're, did, they're trying to force the conservatives to essentially vote against the Paris Climate Accord oh, and so see, that they okay. can say, look, look, they don't want to do anything about this. Right. That's, I think, the real political point of that motion. Because didn't Singh come out this week being like, oh, I, I want the liberals to declare a, a climate well, emergency. So, so the NDP motion was slightly oh, was different in different. that okay. it declared a climate emergency but also said no to pipelines. So they they, in turn, are trying to oh, force the Liberals' hand mm -hmm. in sort of saying where, put their money where their mouth is or their votes where their mouths are. And, and yeah, I think the Trudeau and, and, and Shira came out being like, you know, we're obviously going to support the you know pipeline. But he also, Singh put his foot in his mouth a little bit um, around the LNG project as well. This I think, was not but. a great, this was not a great moment. So I, I listened... Um, I, I listen to Power and Politics as a podcast every morning, and it's an interesting thing mm -hmm. to listen to these exchanges with no visuals. I sometimes think it is actually a great advantage because you lose facial expression and, and like body language, and so all you hear is what they say. And Vashi, God bless her, asked him three times. So back in the, the context of this is back in, I think, January when he was an active candidate for Burnaby South by-election. Right. He was very supportive of LNG project in BC because that was important for that moment yeah. for his support. And he now appears to be pulling back from that, but will not commit to it. So she asked him, I think three separate times, do you or do you not support <laughs> it? And he has this unfortunate habit that I guess other politicians have too. I mean, we saw Trudeau do it with the SNC thing where he just kept repeating the rote mm. script that he'd been given. So and it was just never a good look. <laughs> he kept saying, BC has the most comprehensive, ambitious, ambitious climate plan on in, in the continent or, or in the world. I support that. I support that. Okay, but, but what about the LNG she, project? Right. And so giant has, natural gas pipeline. Yeah, like... Huge. Yeah. $40 billion, I think, to, yeah. to move natural gas across northern BC. BC is in favor of it The by, as, as a government. The feds are in favor of it. It's, it's, yeah, it's I huge. think, the biggest single infrastructure it project is. in Canadian history. It is. It's enormous. Um, and for him to not have an answer on whether he supports well, it and, and to have only one move to sidestep is not deft politics. Right. And he was kind of, I think he kind of pivoted to, well, LNG involves fracking and, and more emissions. So I don't support that. But I mean, right. but, you know, so he. Pickling. Yeah, pickling. Moving ahead here, the Alabama state legislator passed the strictest abortion bill in the country this week. The bill would ban nearly all abortion procedures, even in cases of rape or incest. 
Under the new legislation, doctors who carry out abortions could face up to 99 years in prison. On, 30, uh, on Thursday, Alabama's Republican governor, Kay Ivey, signed the bill into law, which means um, it is set to be put into effect in six months. However, there are many hurdles to climb here. Um, it's expected that pro-choice organizations like, and I'm not sure, maybe they're, maybe they're the, that process is in place already, but like Planned Parenthood and others will, will file multiple lawsuits. Um, and as the bill, and correct me if I'm wrong with the language here, but as the bill goes up through the courts, it's likely to face a major constitutional challenge as, as it reaches the Supreme Court, where Roe versus Wade, um, you know, has, has made abortion legal in all 50 states. So, but from what I've also been reading, that the bill was sort of um, designed to Yes, to it, face. it's intended to mm-hmm. trigger that. A lot of right. these mechanisms now... For a long time, the anti-abortion movement in the U.S. was very deliberately and strategically incremental, very modest, just little gains here, little gains there. They now appear much more emboldened, and the strategy seems to have shifted to these very um, strong, dramatic measures that are intended to, at least one of them, find their way all the way to the desks of the Supreme Court um, with the hope of either either chipping away at some crucial parts of Roe versus Wade or now that the court is heavily conservative thanks to the two judges that uh, justices that Donald Trump appointed um, Neil Gorsuch and uh, Brett Kavanaugh to perhaps overturn Roe versus Wade entirely right. so it's like that is not uh, a bug but a feature of the way they're doing mm. this and and I think that I think it was the Alabama governor or one of the others in the other states that have recently passed what are called heartbeat heartbeat provisions where the idea is within six or eight weeks when a lot of women don't even know they're pregnant that once a heartbeat is detectable abortion would effectively be illegal and I think it was the Alabama governor who who overtly said we our intention is to get this to the Supreme Court and sort of see what comes of it because we know that we that we're likely to get support although if if the Supreme Court took it on it would be very political I, I I don't know that that they would although they'd probably have some success um, just because of that well so need. the Chief Justice John Roberts has sort of showed himself um, to be more of a fan of kind of incremental change mm-hmm. rather than revisiting things and there have been some other decisions recently that um, in either the the dissent or the majority opinion the various justices have felt compelled to kind of flick at the idea of should we wholesale revisit previous long-standing decisions and there's sort of different schools of thought. There's either, hey, if they got things wrong, they got things wrong, we need to undo it. Or there's, we need to have a very specific reason to revisit a Mm. decision that a previous court made and we should not take that lightly. Mm -hmm. So there's some subtlety. It's not as as straightforward as there's five conservative judges and four more liberal ones. There's some subtlety in how they determine their role in revisiting a decision, particularly one as seminal as Roe versus Wade. God feels a little backwards, I gotta say. On the New York Times Daily Podcast this morning, Michael Barbero was interviewing Eric Johnson, the lawyer in Alabama, a lawyer in Alabama who is, um, uh, has spent like more than thirty years trying to ban abortion and ha- helped write this this bill. Um, and at one point, Barbero sort of um, asked him if he's cognizant of the fact that a man wrote this this bill, um, which was then 
passed over to another group of men in the Alabama uh, Alabama legislator that, you know, passed that and would, would hope it to go up to the Supreme Court where another bunch of men would hopefully support it. And he, you know, and, and you know, would, does that bother him or is he aware of that? And he just sort of, you know, it's a non-issue really. You know, there's they're, they're all approaching it in the same way. Men or women, it's okay. I mean, there's just something that really... A lot of, I mean, if... If you believe that abortion is murder, if, if that's your starting point, then I can see that it doesn't really matter who this bit, where this bill originates, or who it passes through, or who the judges are who will deal with it. If if that's your your prior, then you know there's no there's no gender component to the killing of innocent people. If that's not your starting point, of course, it looks very very different. Right, that's a good point, and that is a massive animating factor of the Christian right in the U.S., right? And why they support Donald Trump in a way that blows my mind because I – but for them, the point is get more conservative justices on the Supreme Court and on other levels of court because our highest policy priority is stopping abortion because we view it as wrong. So whatever – however this man has conducted himself in his private life, however many marriages he's had, however – whichever nasty things he said about women – Christians on the right in the U.S. by and large support him because he's seen as a means to an end. Right. Um, but a lot of pe- a lot of people quite horrified by this development, particularly in Alabama, point out the, the idea of being pro-life seems to sort of have a very limited definition. They've yes. said, if you're pro-life, how about we look at the fact that Alabama is like the bargain basement bin among U.S. states for things like infant mortality, child poverty, um, you know, like all kinds of measures that if you care about life and taking care of the vulnerable, it would seem, or you could make an argument that that should extend beyond the point when a baby Where is Where is born. the support for children who are, once they're out of the womb? Yep. Or I, I was just, I was just pulling out my, someone sent me this, which I thought was kind of, you know, um, if you ban abortion before you ban military style assault rifles that massacre children in schools, um, you've lost your right to call yourself pro-life, <laughs> which I thought was pretty interesting. Um, but I mean, I guess what bothers me and this was sort of highlighted in, in, in the New York Times Daily podcast is like a lot of these politicians, the reason they're trying to appeal to the inv- inv- evangelical right is is just to get votes and so i don't know that they they even care about it or 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 care about the issue as much as it affects women you know it's it's more just it's a pretty like i would argue i i think it might be the most deeply held sort of inflammatory culture wars issue in the u.s right now in a place where like the culture wars are like a many fronted war (laughs) that seems to be the third rail um and and sort of a very strong animating force yeah so you might be right that there is some sort of i don't know if it's cynical but some political advantage in appealing to that but it 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 just seems like a a massive uh function right yeah it's there is a a hugely motivated voter base interested in Certainly on the on the right, I think increasingly on the left. Yeah. Looking at it from the the other direction, um, but it's there are a lot of things that the Republican base is in favor of that America as a whole is not in favor of. Yeah. And Republican politicians they have to win the primaries right. first. Absolutely. And they have you know donors and they have people in uh, mega churches who are you know, whipped to the to the the voting booths by their their pastors and there is a huge advantage for any politician who appeals to 
that sort of person. So let's turn this over to Canada because there is a link. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has weighed in, saying he is, quote, disappointed by the backsliding uh, on women's rights in the country. Uh, This came the same day on Thursday that an email blast went out to liberal supporters, which named 12 conservative MPs who uh, attended the anti-abortion rally on Parliament Hill last week. Um, It went on to say that the conservatives, something around the the fact that the conservatives would reopen or are likely to reopen this debate. so yeah, what's going on here? Just just some political everything political old play. is new again. We're back to the secret <laughs> agenda. It's a winner for the liberals. It um, is, and they've been fundraising off it, and they have been uh, seeking you know sign our. I'm not sure if, if it's an actual petition, but show your support for a woman's right to choose by giving us your name and and postal code and uh, email address, which is you know building a database of accessible voters That's true too. who will get more emails That's from the Liberal too. Party as time goes on. And uh, on the other side, the Conservatives have been adamant that this is not right. an official Conservative thing. For 10 years under Stephen Harper, the Conservatives uh, did not, nope. as a government, bring forward any move to restrict abortion at all. Uh, there were some backbench attempts to, with private members' bills that might, would have nibbled around the edges. Nothing got through Parliament. And I mean, I'm not sure whether there's anything that Andrew Shear could say that would actually put people's minds at rest on that point. I'm just wondering if times are different, although Jason Kenney was back in his cabinet then. I'm, I'm just wondering if times are different because of, you know, the, the Alberta and Ontario, they both led by premiers who do have a history of being cozy with sort of anti-abortion um, lobby groups. But I, I just, yeah, I wonder if... It, if it I think the like. landscape when it comes to abortion rights and opinions is very, very different in Canada from the U.S. So I don't, yeah. I think it's worth sort of not even sort of seeing those as parallel streams. Like mm. what's going on in the U.S. is a very particular set of circumstances, mm-hmm. a particular set of causes and a kind of underlying social and political forces I think, like, I, I take your point. I see mm. what you're saying about the the the, the blueing of various mm-hmm. Canadian provinces, but we have a very different culture here yeah. around that kind of thing. We, yeah. we also have a very different legal structure mm-hmm. around abortion, right? So, yeah, yeah, it's I, I to me, it's exactly what David says. It's it's the Liberals making hay in a way that works for them. Yeah. Um, the the Tories have said up and down, we're not going there. We're not interested in it. I mean, they do have. They give the liberals a bit of an opening when they have certain MPs who show up at these anti-abortion events. Uh, The liberals are never not going to capitalize on that. But Scheer and his camp have been about as unequivocal as they can be saying we're not. We're not going there. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I, I doubt we're. I doubt it'll be the last time we we hear this kind of messaging um, from the liberal side of things. All right, that's all for us today. Big day. Twitter handles, please. I am at David Reevely. And I am at S Proudfoot. And I am at Turnbull Sarah. We'll see you next time. And one more thing. If you haven't heard yet, we're hosting former U.S. President Barack Obama at the Canadian Tire Centre on May 31st. Go to Ticketmaster.ca now to reserve your seat. Chat with you soon. Interact helps Canadians access their funds their way. Products like Interact Debit and Interact eTransfer have made money mobile, taking it from the confines of traditional banking and ushering it into the digital age. As consumers adapt to new technology, so does Interact. Learn more at newsroom.interact.ca.